Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Scripture teaches that all of our sins were paid for on the cross, and that the instant of salvation when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, we are forgiven of all sins. Sin is not the issue since the cross, because at the cross, Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins. Yet after salvation, we still sin, we still fail. There is a grace solution, and that is that we simply need to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and at that instant, we are forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and we are restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in our Christian growth or spiritual life. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we thank you that we can go to your word and receive comfort and strength to help in time of need. Father, now as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, that we may gain a greater appreciation for where we fit within the overall scope of creation, of your plan for human history and our future destiny. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to begin sort of an interlude before we get into Revelation chapter 2. Last week we finished the first chapter of Revelation and that is what is uh, described in Revelation 1, 18, is the things which were. This was what John uh, originally saw, his vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, holding the seven stars in his right hand, walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And Revelation 1, uh, 19 He is told to write the things which you have seen, that is, the events of the first chapter, the things which are, and that, as we will see, are the uh, church age doctrines that are encapsulated in the critique, the critique sheet that we find in chapter 2 and 3 of the seven churches, and then the things which will take place after this, which is the future event starting in chapter 4, verse 1. What we have to understand is that there is a dynamic going on here throughout the book of Revelation that fits the closure of human history, that is the seven years of the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, and on into eternity, within the framework of the original rebellion of the angels against God, that all of this fits together that we don't live in a world or in a universe 
that is simply populated by the material beings, the material things which we see in the physical creation. But there are in creatures that are now invisible. They're creatures of light, creatures that are distinct from mankind that the Bible describes as angels. And both the Hebrew word malaach and the Greek word angelos are words that mean messenger, and this has something to do with their essential function. But the book of Revelation is a book that is filled with angels. And we have to understand some basics on angelology, that is the study of angels, before we can really understand what's going on here. The reason we're getting into this is because in Revelation 1, we're given this description of the vision of Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand. When we come to verse 20, we read, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So we are introduced to the fact that there are angels related to these seven churches. Now, this has been a real tough interpretive problem down through history. What does it mean that there are angels related to these churches? Uh, There are several different options that are offered. I will just enumerate them. The first is to take the word angelos here, and that's the, the Greek word, A-N-G-E-L-O-S. This is where we get our word angel. It means messenger. The first approach is to take this literally. That This refers to the fact that there is a supernatural being associated with the local church. Now, why and the nature of this relationship is yet to be determined. People don't understand that. Most commentaries, most scholars don't have a have a framework for defining what that is, so there's been a couple of uh, solutions offered. The second is that this is to be understood, since angels are spirit beings, this needs to be understood in terms of spirit, that these epistles which critique or evaluate each local church really represents the, quote, spirit of the church, the basic attitude of the church. And so there are those who interpret this as being the, this is addressed to the basic attitude or spirit of the local church. I think we can dismiss that pretty much as being a an interpretation that is not supported either linguistically or theologically from the usage of the word or the context of revelation. The third approach is to take this to mean uh, some sort of uh, human uh, representative of the local church. A human representative, not necessarily the pastor or the leader, but just a human representative or a human messenger. And then there are those who get a little more specific and say, well, since this represents a messenger, who is it that gives God's message to the local church? Well, that would be the pastor. So then the angel is thought to be the pastor-teacher. And there are a number of people who take this position. Last night, I pulled down all my commentaries on Revelation off the shelf. I don't have as many as my friend Tommy Ice has. He's got about, I don't know, maybe 60 or 70. 
And of course, he specializes in prophecy, so he he collects commentaries on Revelation to get everybody's view. Uh, but uh, I have about 10 or 12 commentaries on Revelation, and they were about evenly split three ways between these uh, first three t- uh, views, that, that it's supernatural, it's a spirit, or it's a human representative, and there were a couple that specifically designated it as a pastor-teacher. The major issue, the major question that comes up in the minds of those who, who address, and nearly everybody admits that the most natural interpretation should be an angel, because this is the predominant meaning of the word. Almost every writer, every commentator, every scholar notes the fact that over 60 times, in fact, 67 times in the book of Revelation, you have the use of the word angelos. And outside of those that refer to the angel, these angels of the seven churches, which would be one usage each for each of the seven letters, plus the plus the use in um, in verse twenty, every one of these, so uh, uh, let's say fifty nine, it refers to a supernatural being, fifty nine times. Now, a general rule of thumb is that in, in interpretation is that the most obvious, that you should interpret or translate the most obvious meaning first, unless there is compelling evidence from the context to go in another direction. Now, there, when you look at the context of Revelation, where 59 times you have a mention of angel, the word angelos, and it always refers to an angel, a literal angel, then you have to find some pretty compelling reason to not interpret this as a literal angel. The problem everybody has is, why is it written to an angel? I mean, it's addressed to the angel. Why is it addressed to the angel? And what kind of angel is this? And almost everyone who takes it as angel ends up going to an analogy with guardian angels. That just as believers have guardian angels, and, and just as uh, children, Jesus mentions in Matthew, that children have an a, a, angel watching over them. In that same sense, the church has an angel watching over them as a guardian angel. Now, there's no, no doctrine, there's no basis for substantiating that. While they're headed in the right direction in terms of the lexical evidence for angelos, They're missing the boat when it comes to a guardian angel. And the reason is a failure to appreciate what is going on in terms of the angelic conflict. And this is something that we have to understand because in the framework of the book of Revelation, angels... become intimately involved in carrying out the judgments of God throughout the tribulation period. So that's one of the first things we note, is that angels are involved in carrying out judgment throughout the book of Revelation. That's our first clue. Second clue that we see is that the angels here are represented by stars. Angels are represented by stars. And this is consistent with the 
biblical use of the word star. And a couple of weeks ago I mentioned this and went through it a little bit. But if you go through the Old Testament, and I went through and looked up every single usage of the word star in the Old Testament, and it is only used two times in a metaphorical sense in the Old Testament. One of those times is in Genesis, uh, uh, I forget the chapter right now, maybe Genesis chapter 42, where Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, he sees the sun and the moon and the stars uh, bowing down to him. And the sun and the moon represent his parents, and the stars represent his brothers. And so that imagery is also picked up in Revelation. And in those passages, the uh, stars represent, uh, represent the tribes of Israel. And that is in... Uh, Genesis 37. Genesis 37. And the second place is in Job uh, 38, 4 through 7, where stars represent angels. So you have stars representing Israel here, stars representing uh, angels in Job 38, 4 through 7, and a couple of other places in the New Testament, you have stars representing angels. So here you have a metaphor on the one hand, stars, that when it is used as a metaphor in scriptures, it refers to angels. We ha- except for the Genesis 37, Revelation uh, 12 passage in there, uh, that excludes that. So there's no context there. So stars never refer to human messengers. You don't have this me- mentality. For example, in, in uh, everyday colloquial English, we talk about stars. What do we mean when we talk about a star metaphorically? We're talking about a celebrity. We're talking about somebody who stands out, somebody who's at the head of their field. They are a star. They're a, a movie star. They're a television star. They're a, a political star. Maybe they're a star in business. But we use the term star to indicate celebrity ship. The, the Bible never uses the word star to refer to celebrity ship. Uh, I, I ran across one commentary from an excellent scholar, and he uh, gave a list of uh, about four passages where he was trying to say that star represented an elevated or high position. And it doesn't. It, it talks about a star coming out of Jacob. But that's not talking about a celebrity coming out of Jacob. That's fulfilled in the star that signified the birth of the Messiah when uh, when Jesus was born. So you have that as a literal star. He had a couple of other passages, and they were all physical stars, or they were uh, comparing such and so to the brightness of a star. So there it was a comparison to a literal star. There wasn't one passage there that was using star to refer to some sort of leader or celebrity ship or something of that nature. So the documentation isn't there. And one of the rules of interpretation is you have to at least, if you're going to say a word means something, you have to at least find an, an example of where it means that in biblical literature. And star and uh, uh, angel never refers, or excuse me, star never refers to anyone else other than angels. It's a commonly accepted uh, metaphor for angels. Furthermore, the term angel never refers to a pastor. 
it does refer a couple of times to God's messenger. That's the basic meaning of the word, referring to a prophet. For example, John the Baptist was referred to as God's messenger. So that indicates his role, but the term angelos never specifically refers to a pastor. In fact, if if these passages are talking about the pastor, why doesn't John use a word he's used before, like to the pastor, to the poimenos? Why doesn't he say that? Or to the teacher, to the didaskalos? Why doesn't he say that? Well, obviously because he means something that goes beyond a literal messenger. So we have to plug this in to understand the role of the angels in the book of Revelation. Now, this is going to be a detailed study that will take us a couple of weeks to work through. But before we get there, we have to go into the uh, basic understanding of the angelic conflict. So we begin with a timeline. This is an eternal timeline. We'll put an arrow at each end, and this represents eternal God. God has always existed. God is everlasting. He is eternal. There never was a time when God did not exist. He is without beginning or end. God is eternal. And at some time, and we call this eternity past, at some time in eternity past, God created angels, a class of supernatural being that beings that are highly intelligent, highly capable, and what we can tell about angels in the Scriptures is that their bodies are immaterial. They are not physical or material like ours. They're subject to different laws. So they're immaterial. In some places they are uh, signified by light. They seem to be to exude light. They are, they're capable of travel at the speed of thought. They're capable of taking on different forms. Uh, They can appear as a human being with all of the natural, normal body functions of a human being. These angels were created, and at some time in eternity past, prior to the creation of the earth, or excuse me, uh, prior to the present form of the heavens and the earth, there was an angelic fall. And this took place when the Greatest of all the angels, who is known by us as Lucifer, although that's not his uh, proper name in the Scripture. That was a name that was sort of uh, invented in the uh, invented in the uh, as based on the Latin uh, for light, lux, and it, it refers to actually in the Hebrew the name was Hillel. Ben Shahar. I'll just write it in English. Halel, H-E-L-E-L, Ben Shahar. The uh, bright and morning star, son of the dawn. And so this uh, emphasis on light came over as Lux in the Latin, and that's the root for Lucifer. And so that's how we got the name Lucifer. It's actually not, uh, he's not named Lucifer in the passage in Isaiah 14. So God, God is eternal. He creates the angels. He created a planet Earth at some time in eternity past. We don't know when. And this was to be the abode of the angels and was the central headquarters for Lucifer. He fell, and so Earth is judged. And then there is a restoration, a six-day 
restoration uh, during the uh, period of Genesis chapter 1 to prepare the planet for this new creature, man. And so the creation of man is directly related to this angelic fall and angelic rebellion. Now, most of this is review for everyone, but we have to set this up so we understand the dynamics of what's going on in Revelation. So this revolt of Lucifer, which is given in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, leads a revolt against God, and we refer to this as the angelic conflict. And at that time, Lucifer wanted to elevate himself to the same level as God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He wanted to supplant God. And his basic claim was that he could rule creatures as well as God could. He was brilliant. He had tremendous capability. Of course, he was filled with arrogance, and that was his... Uh, sin, that was the original sin of Lucifer, was to think that he could supplant God. The creature wanted to be worshipped as the creator. The creature wanted to rule as the creator. So in this process, Lucifer, as the creature, thinks that the creature should have the right to self-rule and self-determination. And it is a revolt against the authority of God. This is important to understand the entire structure of human history because sin ultimately is a rejection of the authority of God. It is a rebellion against the authority of God. The idea of authority isn't something that God put into human history after the fall in order to solve the chaos from sin. Authority was always present. There's authority within the Trinity. God the Father is the ultimate authority. Jesus Christ was always subordinate to that authority, and so is the Holy Spirit. But they are equal in essence. Nevertheless, within the Trinity, there is a chain of command, so to speak. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, as a result of Lucifer's fall... Man is created in order to demonstrate certain things. This is, in a sense, an experiment, not to find out what will happen. That's how sort of the popular concept of an experiment is to, is to conduct some, some sort of operation to see what will happen. Uh, but the definition of an experiment is that you, you will demonstrate a known truth. So what God is demonstrating in human history is a known truth that the creature must be completely dependent on the Creator. Otherwise, literally all hell will break loose. You have no idea what will take place, what will transpire when the creature disobeys God. It may be something as innocuous as eating a piece of fruit. And yet the unintended consequences from that have reverberated down through 7,000 years of human history and has brought us famine and disease and death and wars and pestilence and all kinds of things, all because of a simple act of eating a piece of fruit. Now, in anybody's list of sins, eating a piece of fruit is not that serious an act, but it represented an act of disobedience to God, and it is that action that changes the very structure of reality. So this is the foundation. And as a result of this, man is created to be this test case. 
an experiment to demonstrate a known truth, and he's going to demonstrate that the creature cannot be stable, can't be happy, can't be content, can't produce anything of consequence without being a 100% completely, totally, radically dependent on the creature, on the creator. As a result of that, the angels are watching us. The angels are observing us, and in that process, the angels are learning things. So human history is but one side of the dynamic of what's taking place in the invisible angelic realm and the physical material realm of mankind. So we have to look at at what is going on. Now, I just want to insert something about this hymn we sang this morning, hymn 345, Crown Him with Many Crowns. It seems lately I've had several questions from people asking about this as well as the hymn we also sing, I can't think of the uh, number now, but it's the um, the diadem version, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. That's hymn number 326. And they both have similar verbiage. I want you to look at this. In the, in the chorus of uh, All Hail the Power, you have the chorus and crown him, crown him, crown him, Lord of all. And the question's been raised, well, who's crowning him? Well, of course, it is God the Father who is crowning him. Well, who is speaking here? Well, who is speaking here in both of these hymns, crown him with many crowns, hymn number 345, and all hail the power, is a picture out of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ does not currently wear a crown. He is not crowned as king. That would indicate his position as king. And I pointed out from uh, our study in Revelation that he is not currently sitting on his own throne. He is sitting on the Father's throne. This is seen in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. What that is indicating is that when Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he did not sit down on his own throne at that time. He sat down at the Father's throne, and that period of time where he is seated is called the session of Christ, from the Latin word sessionum, meaning to be seated. And it is during this church age that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father awaiting the time when he is called forth to assume his role and responsibilities as king and that takes place at the end of the at the end of the tribulation so what the, the, the these hymns represent is the call of the church to God the father the prayer of the church to crown him lord of all to crown him with many crowns because he is represented as returning at the end of the tribulation in Revelation 19:12 wearing many crowns and that's the picture crown him with many crowns but i want you to notice the solid theology here this is why we sing some of the hymns we do you need to think about the words um just think about the imagery here crown him with many crowns the lamb upon his throne. That is calling for an activation of him. This is what we'll see in Revelation chapter 4, when Jesus Christ is called, comes forward as the Lamb to open the scroll. And there is a scroll that's sealed with seven seals, and those seals represents the judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth during the time of the tribulation. 
Crown him with many crowns. And you have a picture of the throne of God, where before the throne of God you have the uh, 24 elders, you have the four, I mean, you have, you, you have the living beings, which are probably seraphim, and you have uh, the church, the bride of Christ that's been raptured, that is before the throne of God and singing praises to God. And they, then they are crying out, crown him with many crowns, a lamb upon his throne. And th- this is a meditation on that. But in the second verse, the second verse, at the end of the second verse, which is like down at the bottom of the page, it says, No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight. Well, what have they just said? Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands, behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. So it's talking about the glorified Christ. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight. What's going on? They're looking at him as having the second person of the Trinity, having been crucified and died on the cross for our sins. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but, and the sense there is because they don't really understand it, how did God become a man? But downward bends his wandering eye. Now I hear people sing that wandering eye. No, he doesn't have a wandering eye. <laughs> Downward bends his wandering eye. See, this is the principle of Scripture, that the angels are looking into these things. They are seeing things demonstrated that they can't learn any other way. They are watching us. They are observers because they are learning things about God. And so that's what's expressed in this hymn. Downward bends his wandering eye at mysteries so bright. It's a mystery to them because they're learning about the grace of God and the love of God and the justice of God in ways that they never could learn about it within their angelic uh, framework. Of other passages in the New Testament that emphasize this. For example, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. Paul says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. So there he is talking about the fact that as apostles, they have been set forth before all of the angelic hierarchy as evidentiary witnesses in what appears to be a trial. Now let me go back and and make one comment. That is that after Satan fell, and he he was condemned to the lake of fire, Matthew 24 tells us that, or excuse me, Matthew 23 tells us that he was condemned to the lake of fire, that the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so with the condemnation of Satan, there was apparently a stall tactic used by Satan. Not uncommon today in many courtrooms, and I'm sure it's been in courtroom activity since the beginning of time, to stall the execution of the penalty. And Satan challenges God's verdict. Now, I think it's much more complex than simply saying, how can a, how can a uh, loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? But that, in essence, 
captures the idea. There's a challenge to God's justice that you're not being fair. You haven't allowed me, the creature, to see if I can rule things well. You're condemning me to eternity in the lake of fire, and how can you, as a loving God, uh, execute such a horrible penalty, eternity, forever and ever and ever, in a lake of fire, fiery torments? That is a horrible death. That is an incomprehensible death to spend eternity in this kind of horror. How can you do that? And so what God has decided to do, for whatever reason, is that he is going to demonstrate through human history why the independent act of a creature is so egregious that an independent act by a creature can bring up about such horrible consequences that eternal death in a lake of fire is nothing compared to all of the horrible consequences that came about as a result of Satan's decision to act independently from God. Now, this is the framework that apparently Satan challenges God, and there God grants grants his appeal. Okay, I'm going to demonstrate this. And so we have a structure laid over human history that is tantamount to a trial. It's, it's, it's a metaphor. Uh, when we get into Scripture, we see that, that so much of what is related to our, uh, our involvement with uh, our relationship with God is based on law, on legal aspects. When Adam sinned, he's condemned. There is a judicial penalty, and that was spiritual death. The solution to spiritual death has to do with a doctrine that's explained in the New Testament as justification. There is the imputation of righteousness. Righteousness comes, the term righteousness is based on the Greek word dikaiosune, a word we've studied in the past, and dikaiosune emphasizes the legal aspect. It's from the Greek word dikai, meaning virtue, but also came into the uh, legal terminology of ancient Greece. So we have to receive an imputation of righteousness so that we can be declared just. That's what justification means. When the reformers came along, Martin Luther in uh, 1517, and declared that justification was by faith alone, it was a recovery of a biblical doctrine that had been lost in the Middle Ages in the Roman Catholic Church. They thought that somehow man just gradually improved himself through good works, and on that basis uh, God would let let them into heaven. But what Luther realized from reading Galatians and reading Romans was that man could never be justified on the basis of his own works because he is inherently flawed because of Adam's sin. And so as a result of that, God designs a perfect solution that involves the the uh, giving of righteousness, which we call the imputation of righteousness. Man is given righteousness, and then when God looks at that righteousness that he's been given, he declares him to be righteous. And so this is a judicial decision. We see the same imagery again when we come to confession. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This isn't talking about remorse. It's not talking about feeling sorry for your sins. It is a courtroom situation because just uh, two verses later, or yeah, two verses later in 1 John 2, 1, we have Jesus as our advocate. Again, it is a judicial term. So all of this 
terminology that we find in Scripture, the, the picture of our relationship with God, is carried across in this judicial sense. So we're in a courtroom, and we are the witnesses. We're on the witness uh, list, and our lives have evidentiary value in God's demonstration of His grace, His love, and His justice. And so the angels are involved in the carrying out and execution of this judgment. This is what we see happening in the book of Revelation. When we come to the uh, later part of, of the book of Revelation, we'll see all the different judgments that the angels are involved in on planet Earth. And angels, halfway through the tribulation, angels and demons become visible to mankind. So what we see is that right now there's this separation so that we don't see what's going on in the angelic world. We don't see demons. We don't see angels. We don't have any idea what is going on there. The only reason we know they exist is because the Bible says they exist. But when we get into the latter part of the tribulation, it's going to be a really weird scene. I mean, the... You're, they're going to be the demons are cast out of heaven, and they're 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 confined to earth. They lose some of their powers, and the demons are walking around on planet Earth. Angels are visible and present, and you see the the two uh, arenas of conflict: the human history and the angelic conflict merging together for its final culmination at the Battle of Armageddon. So the book of Revelation is a book that is loaded with references to angels 60 times outside of these uh, two chapters talking about the churches. 60 times angels are mentioned in the book of Revelation. That is a high number of references. So when we come to these two chapters... And we see that angels are mentioned here in terms of the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Smyrna, the angel of the church of Pergamum, Thyatira. Each church has an angel. We have to ask the question before we dismiss the idea that, well, it just doesn't make sense to write this to an angel. Let's see if it does make sense. Let's put it within the context of the angelic conflict and what's going on in the book of Revelation. And what we see is that it not only fits the book of Revelation, it fits the overall pattern of Scripture. We go back to an Old Testament event. I've mentioned it before. In Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Mosaic Law. When God, and you all have seen the movie with Charlton Heston called The Ten Commandments when he goes up on Mount Sinai and you see the pillar of fire and you see the fireball come out and, and the finger of God write the commandments on the, on the stone. And then he cuts out the tablets. But Moses comes down with one set of tablets in the movie. How many tablets were there? There were two sets. Why were there two sets? Think about it. It's a contract. Okay? When you go to buy a house and you fill out your contract, there is one contract that is put on file down at the courthouse. And there's one copy that gets put on file in your files. It's the same kind of thing. One copy was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. This was the sort of what we might, because the Ark of the Covenant was what? The throne of God in the Psalms. This is the heavenly witness to this contract on earth. 
Where's the other copy go? The other copy is available for the Jews to read so that they know what their obligations are. So you have this, you have two copies made. And there is one that is related to the heavenly aspect, one related to the human aspect, the human dimension. And we see the same thing going throughout scripture, that there is a correspondence between heaven and a correspondence between what's going on on the earth. You see the same thing in the book of Hebrews. It talks about the heavenly temple, uh, the heavenly throne of God, which corresponds to the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly throne of God. So you have this correspondence taking place between the two. So what's happening in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is that these angels are the are functioning as the... Um, as the courtroom witnesses to what is taking place in each local church. They're not functioning as guardian angels. That has the idea of protection. They're functioning in the realm of, uh, of, of courtroom witnesses. Why? What's going on? What's going on is this claim of, of Satan that man can't function independently of God. And what God is doing in each dispensation is demonstrating different facets of his character and his provision. So in the church age, we have the highest provision uh, of divine grace, both in terms of salvation, but in terms of who and what every believer is in Jesus Christ, that we are adopted into the royal family of God. We are all priests to God. And we have been given a unique spiritual life with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we have all of this. Now, when we look at these seven letters to the seven churches, they don't fit the model of the epistles that we have earlier in the New Testament, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy. They're very brief. They're addressed. Each one is addressed to the uh, angel of that particular local church. Then there, this is followed afterwards by uh, a reference to the one who is the author of this. And he picks up an image from, with, the, with one exception, it picks up the image out of Revelation 1, uh, some aspect of the vision of Jesus Christ in the first chapter. And then there is a statement of commendation. Uh, for example, with the letter to the Ephesians, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. So there's commendation, but there's also condemnation, and there's a couple of them that have no commendation, but only condemnation. There's a couple that have only uh, condemnation, and I mean, excuse me, commendation and no condemnation. And there's a condemnation. Then there is a warning, and then there is a promise of blessing to those who overcome. It is an evaluation. This is a report card. It is a critique sheet. It's a judgment. It is an evaluation of each church as to where they are. So it's not a instruction of doctrine. It's not instruction on the spiritual life, but it is a critical evaluation or judgment of where they are. Now, this fits the vision that we see back in chapter 1. John sees the vision, he hears a voice speak to him, commanding him to write down the things that he is seeing and to send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. And he turns and he sees a voice that spoke to him, and we have an image of the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. This is a picture of someone who is in high office, the picture 
of uh, the, the, the robe down to the feet and the chest girded about is like a priest. But he is also pictured as a judge. His head and his hair white like wool, white as snow indicates purification. The eyes like a flame of fire, it's piercing. He is evaluating the local church. His, um, out of his mouth goes a sword, which is uh, a romphia sword, not the machaira of the short two-edged sword. So this is indicating judgment again. The picture is of the, of the Son of Man walking in the midst of this circle of the seven churches, and it is Jesus Christ actively working in the midst of the local church to purify the local church. All of this has to do with judgment. So what's happening is that on the one hand, this letter is being sent. Remember the model. The model is a Mosaic law. You have two copies. One has a, is a heavenly witness. One's the earthly copy. The same thing here. You have a heavenly copy to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And on the other hand, you have the the human earthly copy. Well, how do we know about the earthly copy? Because John was told to write these things down and send the whole thing to each one of these churches, seven copies to each church. So he wrote it all down and made seven exact copies and sent them out to each of these churches. The whole book of Revelation, not just sending to uh, the church of Ephesus the first seven verses of chapter 2 and to the church of Smyrna uh, the next four verses. He sent a, a, a copy of the entire Revelation to each individual congregation. There is a heavenly witness to what is going on in each church, because each church is accountable, going to be held accountable to, at the judgment seat of Christ, and that's where there will be rewards and blessing. That is why each of these uh, critique sheets ends up with the statement that to the one who overcomes, I will give something. For example, at the end of the first one, first epistle to the or first letter to the. Ephesians, I will give to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which in the, is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then we come to the second one, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And the third one, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And so you go through each one of these, and it includes with a statement related to rewards, and crowns at the judgment seat of Christ. So the, the picture here takes us right back to what is going on within the appeal trial of Satan, that the human race is designed at, to provide a witness to the justice, the love, the integrity of God, and in the outworking of that, the angels are watching us because we're providing that evidence. So they have a scorecard. And these are the scorecards. And according to that scorecard, they're evaluating us. Now, one of the things that I'll do before we finish this is that we'll go through and identify each of the categories. Remember when you were in elementary school, you got a report card. And I don't know how they did things here in Connecticut. I don't know how they do things anywhere now. But, but back when I was in school, you had one side of the report card had to do with your academic subjects, uh, 
language, arithmetic, geography, uh, whatever they were. And then on the other side, you had character traits, citizenship, self-discipline, uh, patience, uh, works well with others, all those kinds of character traits. And you got letter grades, uh, A, B, C, D, and F for your academic subjects. And in terms of character traits, you got a check plus or a minus. Well, that's what this is, that, that character trait list is what we have here in Revelation. Each one of these letters focuses on certain character traits, certain spiritual virtues that are either present or not present, that are either, uh, and some that need to be worked on. For example, in um, the Revelation uh, 2, 12, or, you know, it should be, it's, it's the, to the letter of the church of Thyatira. Uh, nevertheless, verse 20, 220. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that, uh, no, that's not the right one. It's the first, it's the uh, Sardis letter. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are about to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. In other words, this isn't the final word on these churches. There's a warning here that you still have an opportunity to confess your sin, to recover, and to move forward and grow in the spiritual life. So what we'll see here is that these are evaluation statements or critique sheets for each individual church and that these seven churches represent uh, all the different kinds of churches you can find during the church age. They're not representing successive periods in the church age. But it, what it does is it shows that what's going on right now at Preston City Bible Church or whatever local church you're in, there is an evaluation going on in the angelic realm that we are being observed by the angels and that there is a record being made of how we listen to doctrine, how well we apply doctrine, what we do with what we're taught, and this is the basis for that evaluation. And this is eventually going to be brought up at the evaluation judgment uh, called the Bema Seat or the, the uh, Judgment Seat of Christ when we are standing before the Lord Jesus Christ for an evaluation for uh, rewards and uh, crowns and rewards during the uh, Millennial Kingdom. Because at that time we're going to function as judges over the angels according to 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, we're going to judge the angels. We're also going to be serving as priests. Now, I'm still studying that. I'm glad that's not mentioned until Revelation 21 because that's the only time there's a mention of the fact that in eternity future, we're going to operate as, as priests. Well, a priest is a go-between between man and God. Well, during the millennial kingdom, there will be a millennial temple. And at the Millennial Temple, the priesthood is run by uh, Jewish priests. And what role do we have as, as resurrected church-age believers? We're still going to function as priests. So there's some element there that probably relates to the Gentile nations, but that's the only passage that mentions it. We're going to be functioning as kings, as rulers at that same time. And so we're being prepared for that, and all of that preparation functions within the framework of the angelic conflict. This is why I believe that these letters are written 
to the angels. Now, they're, they're also sent to the churches, but it's addressed to the angel because the angel in, in Revelation plays a role in executing divine judgment. And so the angel is given a copy of the critique sheet, of the report card. It's not just given to the church. You know, when you were a kid, you went home and your parents had to sign off on that report card. You didn't just get to take it home yourself and do a little self-evaluation. And that's the same kind of idea, is that there's a copy being sent to the angel for the angel to uh, be aware of, and he's keeping a list and tracking things because of how that relates to the overall um, trial of Satan. And this will all be resolved uh, at the at the end. Now, one question that has come up a couple of times as we close this morning is, um, since I will be leaving here on uh, November 15th or 14th will be my last Sunday, that uh, what's going to happen to the rest of Revelation? What's going to happen to the rest of Genesis? Well, after I move down to Houston and after we get settled and cranked up down there, I'm going to start off there where I end here. So if you want to continue listening to Revelation and Genesis uh, after I leave here, those will all be posted on the uh, new website, and so that's all going to be available. So nobody's going to miss anything. I've gotten several questions both from folks here in the congregation as well as uh, people who are taping. They want to see the end of those series, and they will be ended. I will continue those. Uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by these truths, to recognize that we fit within a much broader overall scope in terms of the angelic conflict, Uh, not just as individuals but as local churches, that each local congregation is being evaluated in terms of our uh, witness, our testimony, our deposition in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by these things, recognize that we are not living our life just in terms of our own personal pleasures, our own personal circumstances, but that our life is being played out on a universal stage where the angels are watching us and we are providing evidence, we are teaching things through our life that they cannot learn anywhere else. Father, we pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, are uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty in full so that all you have to do is to receive it as a gift, to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not a matter of uh, trying to impress God with your goodness, uh, joining a church, improving your life, or any other human factor. It is simply a matter of accepting His gift to you of eternal life. The instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you are born again, regenerated. You receive the perfect righteousness of Christ and eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.